This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss Canadians' mega deficiency in omega-3 fatty acids with naturopath Dr. Ludo Brunel. We'll find out if you're getting too much magnesium with naturopath Dr. Barb Warger. We'll discover new findings regarding celiac disease with charity leader Melissa Secord. And lastly, we'll learn about the work of the Black Physicians Association of Ontario with Executive Director Chennai Kadanguri. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. About a decade ago, researchers in UC Santa Barbara chemistry professor Guillermo Bazan's lab began to observe a recurring challenge in their research. Some of the compounds they were developing to harness energy from bacteria were instead killing the microbes. Not good if the objective of the project was to harness the metabolism of living bacteria to produce electricity. However, instead of brushing it off as a rather annoying laboratory curiosity, in subsequent research, the team leaned into the apparent antimicrobial properties of these compounds called conjugated oligoelectrolytes. Fast forward to today, and they now have the basis for a new class of antibiotics, one that not only shows promise against a broad array of bacterial infections, but can also evade the dreaded resistance that's been rendering our current generation of first-line antibiotics ineffective. Question. What's the best way to make sure you're getting the most up-to-date and accurate health and wellness information? Answer. The Tonic Newsletter, of course. Visit www.thetonic.ca and sign up today. I'll be joined by Dr. Ludo Brunel in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. Dr. Ludo Burnell is a naturopathic physician trained at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto. Prior to his training as a doctor, he studied human nutrition at McGill University in Montreal. Dr. Brunel has spent the last 17 years helping patients optimize their health through better lifestyle and dietary supplementation. His passion remains educating the public, his patients, and colleagues. Welcome back to the show, Ludo. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited today to talk about omega-3s. It's one of my favorite topics. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to cover here. So I guess maybe we should just talk about, you know, baseline, top flight. Why are omega-3 so important and, and how much do we need daily? Yeah, so for sure that's the most important part of that whole topic. Um, when we look at omega-3s and their benefits for health, 
they can address some of the major health issues that are facing Canadians right now. So research shows that omega-3s help with mental health. They decrease the risk of depression. Um, as I'm sure you know, depression is rampant and, and mental problems are on the rise. They say right now that uh, one out of every two Canadians is diagnosed with a mental health issue before the age of 40. So there, fish oils can be very beneficial. On top of that, they really help in terms of prevention of heart disease, which remains one of the leading causes of deaths for Canadians. Fish oils also decrease inflammation. And if we look at uh, inflammatory conditions, they're very common. So arthritis eventually affects about one in three Canadians. So there again, fish oils can be of, of um, great benefit to help reduce symptoms and problems associated with too much inflammation. Makes a lot of sense. Why is it that it's so hard for us Canadians, uh, and I'm understanding that the two out of five, so 40% of us are not getting these essential fats. Why, why is it so challenging to get omega threes? Well, honestly, with with you know my my experience over the last twenty years, it comes down to people don't like the taste of fish, and that's the biggest hurdle for sure. Um, most people eat fish rarely, uh, occasionally, like most of my patients, once a week, uh, once every two weeks, they'll have some fish. So. Uh, clearly not enough, and it leaves us with way too little omega-3s from our di- in our diet. Um, and you're right, 40% of us, according to the latest Statistics Canada study, are not getting enough omega-3s on a daily basis in our diet overall. If we look at uh, omega-3s versus omega-6, um, research shows that ideally we should get one omega-3 for every two or four, depending on you know what condition we're looking at, omega-6. So a ratio of one to two to one to four. And the average in Canada is one to 20. In Calgary, uh, in, in the patient population that I've worked with, when I've tested them, the average was one to 24. And so way too little of, of those beneficial oils and uh, too much of all the other ones, including omega-6, but also saturated fats. Um, so we, we, lots of work needs to be done to offset that ratio. And I think awareness is not even there. Most of my patients are surprised when I tell them, you know, eating fish once a week or once every two weeks is not going to be enough um, to yeah. support optimal health. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I eat fish at least once a week, and I thought I was doing God's work, but apparently I'm, I'm, I'm still not doing enough. Is, is that the only natural source of omega-3s, is, is fish oil? So oil, um, fish oil or, or fish is probably the best source. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can get some omega-3s from other things, like, for example, um, eggs. Uh, so, some eggs now, you know, they give flax to the chickens, and then right. there's a little bit more of the omega-3s in those eggs. But if we look at the amount, it's quite low. So typically in two eggs, we'll have around 200 milligrams of those omega-3s. Um, in, in four ounces of salmon, you can get about 10 times that or about a gram or a thousand milligrams of the omega-3s. The other, the other problem is that the, the parts of the fish that are oily, the skin and the fat are parts of the fish that people don't like to eat either. Yeah. And so there's, there's a few challenges when it comes to getting enough, um, but in, in my experience, it really comes down to taste. You know, we grill the salmon, 
and I'm actually having it tonight, I think. I like the skin, but does it give you the health benefits if you if you get it nice and crispy, or or does it have to be softer for in order to get the health benefits of the omega-3s? If the oil drips out, then, of course, you're going to lose some of the fish oil, but um, it should be okay to grill it. All right. So why should we get omega-3 from supplements? And, and how do we pick the right supplement if, if we're going to go that route? Yeah, so that's a great question. The, you know, the oil has several advantages. It's a controlled dose, so you're getting the same amount every day. Even if you eat a lot of fish, different fish will have different amounts of omega-3s. So the oily fish like salmon and trout has a lot more than something like cod, for example, about four times more. So you're getting a consistent dose. Um, most fish oils now are what we call molecularly distilled, so we've removed all the pollutants, so there's no risk of contamination with mercury, which, which can be a problem with certain fish. The large predatory fish, tuna being the prime example, certain types of tuna, I should say, but um, the fish that eats the other fish bioaccumulates the mercury up the food chain. Sure. And, um, you know, some of those levels can become quite high with specific types of fish. And both Health Canada and the FDA have charts and recommendations when it comes to certain fish and how often you should eat them based on the risk of contamination with mercury, especially important for pregnant women. Uh, so when you use the oil, you avoid those issues. So that's two of the main benefits, consistent dose and avoiding the risk of exposure to mercury. Right. All right. So how do we know which ones to take, though? Like what dosage and, and how do we pick our, our omega-3 supplements? So yeah, so typically, you know, when it comes to looking at fish oil, you know, you want you want to get something that's going to have a high concentration of EPA, DHA. So those are the two uh, types of omega-3s. Uh, we also want something that's tested for purity, that's also going to be tested for rancidity, an oil that's been oxidized is obviously not going to be very healthy for us. Um, I always tell patients, you know, don't keep your, your fish oil on the counter. Always keep it refrigerated once it's open because once the air gets in there, we want to slow down oxidation. If the oil is expired, it's done. If it smells very fishy, that's also a sign that uh, it's been oxidized. Um, and so, and then we can look at the delivery method. So a lot of patients, often I'll recommend a liquid, and some liquids are now infused with lemon or different flavors to make it more palatable. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people still prefer soft gels, and then it's looking at, you know, how many of those per day we need to take. Usually do, if you use a liquid, it's easier to get more per serving. Um, but, you know, either way, trying to get more omega-3 will be beneficial. I think, you know, it's, most people know that omega-3s are good for your heart health, but, but what else can it help with? So in terms of depression, omega-3s of all natural products probably have some of the best research um, in terms of inflammation and controlling inflammation for things like arthritis. Uh, there's also lots of research. Um, so overall, you know, heart health is one of the main benefits. They really help to control cholesterol levels and especially triglyceride levels. And uh, about half of adult Canadians have uh, high cholesterol levels. So um, there's certainly a lot of be potential benefits for a large segment of the Canadian population.
Okay, so earlier in our conversation, you made reference to omega-6 fatty acids. So how does that pertain to omega-3s? Are they, are they good for us? Are they not good for us? The other omegas? Yeah, so we need some. You know, the recommendation is 11 to 22 grams of omega-6 per day. Uh, omega-6 are usually from more vegetable oils, um, and they're easier to get. They're also less expensive, so the food industry uses them more typically. Um, in terms of cooking, they're, they're going to be more stable at higher temperatures, and um, so certainly you know, there's a use for them, and, and they, they can have uh, an important role when it comes to their health. Their body cannot make omega-3s or omega-6. But uh, again, when we look at the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6, it's clear that most of us are getting way too much of the omega-6 and clearly not enough of the omega-3s, with the average Canadian getting a ratio of 1 to 20, when we would like to see a ratio of 1 to 2 to 1 to 4. So um, in terms of supplementation, I would always recommend using a fish oil instead of an oil that would contain omega-6. Okay, so to get the ratios right, I mean, one way to do it would be to have more omega-3s. But another way to deal with that, I suppose, in theory, would be to cut back on the on the other uh, fats. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. So you could try to reduce the omega-6, but again, you know, if, if people are not going to get additional omega-3s, that, that would be very hard to offset that ratio to the levels that we wanted at. Um, because most people don't take a fish oil supplement and most people don't consume enough, enough fish. Most of the research says you should eat fish at least twice a week, and um, some research even goes as far as saying optimally we should get fish at least five times a week to get enough of those omega-3s. And, you know, in 20 years of practice, I can count on one hand the amount of patients that I've met that eat fish almost daily. It's quite rare. So I think the supplements are going to be, for most people, the way to go. It's also expensive. I mean, you know, I can afford to have fish. Whether I choose to have fish five times a week, I probably wouldn't. But also, right. you know, as, as proteins go, I would say it's, you know, to get good cuts of, of salmon that are organic, you're you're paying a fair bit for that. I think it's close to 20, 20 bucks a pound at this point. For uh, sure. Fish, everything's gone more expensive. Fish is no exception to that. It's still much less than beef. But you're right, there is a cost factor associated with consuming fish often, definitely. It is one of the best sources of protein, and of course you get the added benefit of getting the oils. Um, but I understand all those challenges, and again, that's why I'll tell patients you should definitely start using a fish oil supplement. Right. Okay, so if you're recommending these supplements, what are you telling your patients to look for in terms of those supplements? good quality um, product that's been tested, a product that uh, has that ISO certification is usually a good thing to look for. And then the dose is the other thing. So typically at least 1,000 milligrams per day. And uh, depending on what we're looking at, some, some people I recommend a lot more. I use at home with myself and the kids. We take one teaspoon of fish oil per day, which is going to be upwards of 3,000 milligrams or three grams of fish oil daily. Um, so that's usually what I would recommend for most of my patients. If they don't want to use a liquid, usually soft gels are a great option as well. 
Uh, in terms of soft gel, about uh, there's about one gram or a thousand milligrams of fish oil per soft gel, depending on the product we're looking at. So two to three per day is usually where you would want to be. And what if you're a vegetarian? Are, are there vegetarian sources of omega-3? There are. Um, the problem is, you know, with with vegetarian oils that provide omega-3s, uh, we use a precursor called ALA, and the conversion rate is not very good. So only about 5 to 10% of that oil is then converted to omega-3s. With a lot of my vegetarians, I'll tell them, you know, we should still consider a fish oil, uh, I explained that the, the the parts of the fish that are used to produce the oil are waste products. So again, the skin that, uh, is removed when the fish is converted into fillets, and then the fatty part of the fish that people don't want to eat, typically the, the underbelly, and that's what's used um, to, to basically create the omega-3. So it's a waste product. Um, if they still are opposed to doing a fish oil, then that's when we would use something that's derived from typically algae or, or other vegetarian sources of ALA. But we have to use a lot more to, to get the same amount of omega-3 oil. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Ludo Burnell. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss whether you're getting too much magnesium on the tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlpha.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Barb Borgerer is a licensed naturopathic doctor practicing in Toronto, Ontario. Her clinical focus is in women's health, stress management, and inflammatory conditions. Dr. Barb spends a great deal of time educating individuals on the importance of magnesium and why we all need to add this mineral into our health toolbox. You can find her on Instagram at Dr. Barb Wogerer, that's W-O-E-G-E-R-E-R, where she shares a wealth of information about magnesium and other topics. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me back. So, like, there's a, a point in the universe, I'm not saying this is your 15 minutes of fame, but, but you know, uh, all of a sudden I keep reading all these articles about magnesium. Everybody's talking about magnesium. And you've been there. You're ahead of the curve. You were there for, you know, a while talking about magnesium. But now everybody's caught up to you. So this is it. This, this is the show, Barb. We're going to talk about magnesium, okay? Absolutely. 
So give us a quick general overview of magnesium, what it is and why we need it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, a real short, quick overview. It's responsible for over 600 enzymatic reactions in the body. So what that means is the majority of our body's enzymes rely on magnesium for their proper function. Um, and given that it has this role, it's important that we maintain proper magnesium levels in the body. It does some really important things. It helps to, you know, sense of sensitize uh, insulin receptors. It's absolutely mandatory for vitamin D to be become active in the body. It helps with things like sleep and stiff and tight muscles and stress and bone density and all those things. Um, but the unfortunate thing is, is that most of us are deficient in this mineral because it gets depleted in so many ways, things like stress, sugar, inflammation, medications, and so forth. But that's kind of like the quick overview of of magnesium. Right. So I like to zig when everybody else sags. And yeah. and so all the articles are about why we need magnesium and why it's, it's so important. And, and it is. But I think it's possible, particularly if you're supplementing, uh, to get too much magnesium. So can we discuss what happens if you get too much magnesium and, and how you would know if you have to, if you have too much magnesium? Yes, absolutely. And this can happen, it depends on the individual, can happen at smaller doses or even higher doses. But the, the recommended dietary allowance for magnesium is somewhere between 310 and 420 milligrams per day. And that's obviously the minimum amount that we need. Now, when you are dosing with supplements and you're not, you're dosing two, three times a day, we can have this buildup of magnesium that happens. And when we have too much magnesium in the system, we're likely going to see symptoms like diarrhea, which is probably the most common cause um, of symptom when we see too many, uh, too much magnesium. We see nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramps even dehydration. And then in the more severe cases, we can even see difficulty breathing, the heartbeat gets irregular, we get low blood pressure, um, and it can also progress to some form of muscle weakness. But these, that's at really severe cases, like really high, high doses. So why is it, why is it that somebody might get diarrhea or have stomach cramps if they're taking too much magnesium? Is it an absorption issue? Is that what's going on? Yeah, and it also depends on the form of magnesium, right? Okay. So we don't absorb all the different forms of magnesium. And so a lot, magnesium is kind of what's considered an osmotic laxative where it's kind of bringing water into the colon. And then, of course, this can can cause uh, bowel movement, so bowel movement. Uh, but when we're getting in things like oxide or citrate, these are very uh, stimulating and they can then, of course, cause that diarrhea-like action. Um, but we also have to pay attention to certain conditions because they, we have to remember that magnesium is eliminated through the kidneys. And so people who have certain health conditions are going to have difficulty getting rid of magnesium, especially if they've taken too much. Okay. Now, you said, that I think off the top, that magnesium is responsible for, what, 600 yeah. uh, actions? I, sort of like a catalyst. And, and uh, so I would imagine if you have too much magnesium, that might impact the body's ability to, for example, absorb other minerals. Is that the case? Yes. Um, there's usually three big ones. Um, so we know that 
um, magnesium and calcium are both really great minerals for bone health, and they kind of work together to maintain bone density and strength. But uh, high levels of magnesium actually disrupts the balance between those two um, minerals, and then that leads to actually decreased calcium absorption. Uh, we then see zinc is also another uh, mineral where we have to be careful because excessive magnesium is going to impair that zinc being absorbed in the intestines, which then can lead to zinc deficiency. And we know how important zinc is for our immune system, wound healing, and it can disrupt a lot of different hormones. And then finally, one of the biggest ones probably as well is iron. So we see that if we have high levels of magnesium, that's going to interfere with the absorption of that non-heme iron, which is the iron that's found in a lot of plant-based foods and supplements. And then that reduced iron absorption um, is going to obviously put you at risk for iron deficiency anemia. It can give you fatigue, weakness, and all sorts of things. Most of us don't get enough magnesium just because of the way we eat. Is it, like in the modern world, is it possible to have too much magnesium if you weren't supplementing? No. I wouldn't have thought so, right? Like I don't think anybody's getting so much magnesium in their food that they're going to have too much. So I, we don't want to alarm people who aren't taking magnesium because it's, it's a non-issue, correct? Right, right. There's, I mean, we, our soils are depleted these days. There's soil erosion, all those things. So it's really, it's difficult to get even close to the RDA from food alone. Right. Um, so, yeah, I would not ever think that there would be a possibility that we could overdo magnesium from food alone. Okay. So, because magnesium interacts with so many of our bodily functions, and because so many of us uh, have pre-existing conditions and or are taking medications, um, can we go through some of the, you know, top-line health conditions or medications which might be impacted by, you know, having too much magnesium? Yeah, there's really uh, two big ones. Um, obviously, I think I mentioned it just earlier, anybody who has any type of renal condition, whether it's acute or chronic, so any type of kidney issue, um, this is probably the biggest caution with magnesium. Um, we need to make sure that that individual is monitored by a healthcare practitioner when they're taking magnesium. And that's because, as I mentioned, magnesium is excreted through the kidneys. And if your kidneys aren't working, then there's an issue of magnesium buildup, obviously. That's going to happen. And the other condition we have to be careful with is um, adrenal insufficiency. So it's also known as Addison's disease when you're not, your adrenals are not working properly. They're not making uh, cortisol and aldosterone and those things. And so what this does is when you have this decreased aldosterone production, um, then, of course, your kidneys are going to be impacted. And that's, again, going to then build up. Uh, that magnesium in the system when you are taking it by supplementation. And then obviously there's just straight out over supplementation of magnesium. Right. Okay. So if someone thinks that they are taking too, too much magnesium, if they've got the runs or, you know, unexplained cramps and they think that maybe magnesium is the culprit, what are reasonable steps to be taken? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Discontinue the supplement and just 
supportive care, right? That's going to be your most common. Um, usually magnesium is not something that stays in the system for a long time. So if you discontinue your supplement, probably within 24 hours, you should have a resolution of those symptoms, whether that's diarrhea, cramping, or anything like that. If it's really bad, if you've really overdone it and um, you have a ton of magnesium, you can even go as far as doing IV injections of calcium because calcium acts as that antagonist to magnesium for binding in the in the cell, and so that can then inhibit um, the effects of, of, of magnesium. So um, that would only be in severe cases, though. Again, like we're not usually seeing this type of dosage um, happening with individuals. Okay. So we've been experimenting in our house with when we're taking magnesium. Like most, most people take their pills sort of uh, at the beginning of the day, at least I do, you know, like mm-hmm. with, with breakfast, if it's supposed to be taken with food, you know, probiotics, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. But uh, my wife and I are starting to take the magnesium later in the day. Do you think that would impact how it's being absorbed or, or this issue of perhaps taking too much magnesium? Um, no, although different forms are going to work better at different times. So something like a magnesium citrate, which usually is, like I said, an osmotic laxative, is going to help with bowel movements. So taking that at night is going to allow for that to work and get that into the bowel. But it's not going to change as far as um, getting in too much magnesium. We really have to look at how much magnesium is actually coming in when we're looking at magnesium dosage. So, I mean, anything usually around under a 1,000 milligrams is most likely not going to impact um, many people if they're taking a form of magnesium that's not a laxative form. So if you're taking oxide or citrate, you're definitely, when you're getting up to those levels, could be reaching diarrhea or cramping. Whereas if you're doing L3 and 8 or bisoglycinate or something that's not as laxative prone, you're likely not going to see those things. But I would say probably most common people are dosing around 400, 600 in there. Got it. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Barb Borger, ND. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss new findings regarding celiac disease on The Tonic. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Melissa Secord is the National Executive Director of Celiac Canada. 
Her major accomplishments include changing public policy to address funding for screening of celiac disease, transforming an association to a thriving patient advocacy charity, collaboration on a new parliamentary celiac caucus, and public funding of a province-wide children's eye health initiative. She has 25 years plus experience in association management, patient advocacy, government, stakeholder, and public relations, strategic planning, marketing and communications, event management, including trade shows, sponsorship and partnership development, membership recruitment and retention programs, education and project management. You wear many hats like I do. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm a jack of all trades. Master of none. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for having me. Well, we'll see. Maybe maybe like talk show guest is, is one you'll master immediately. That you never yeah, know. I'll be able to add that to my LinkedIn bio. So celiac disease, uh, to what extent is the disease misunderstood and suffering minimized? You know, it's really misunderstood. And, you know, we've, the disease has sort of benefited a little bit from the gluten-free fad diet uh, that you hear a lot of celebrities, uh, oh, I'm gluten-free to lose weight. And actually, it's not really a weight loss diet. It's actually nope. um, missing key nutrients. Yeah. You know, I used to sponsor a celiac consumer event. And what I noticed from the foods that were being sold there is like they do wonderful things for people with celiac disease because otherwise they wouldn't be able to eat stuff like bread or pasta or things like that. But from a nutritional perspective, because they're highly processed, they aren't necessarily the best foods for you. Exactly. And a lot of people just assume celiac disease is um, upset stomach, bloating, um, and it's often not even taken seriously by a lot of people. It's like, oh, it's a little bread. Well, actually, a little bread or a little even crumbs do matter. Every crumb does matter. And um, it is an autoimmune disease. It's lifelong. Uh, and it does cause serious damage. Like uh, long term, it's osteoporosis, neurological problems, uh, uh, cancers of the stomach uh, can put you at risk. So it is a serious disease. So if someone thinks they have it, they, they should get tested. Um, but it's so far really underdiagnosed, only about uh, 20% of Canadians are diagnosed. So it's it's out there, people are suffering. And, you know, we ask, you know, could it be the gluten uh, giving people the problem? So, and it's also what we're finding, and we've just released, uh, it's called the State of Celiac in Canada report after a significant health survey of 7,500 Canadians, is that the newer symptoms are actually neurological. Uh, four of the top 10 symptoms are anxiety, brain fog, mood swings, irritability, headaches, uh, versus those traditional, you know, if people have heard of celiac disease, bloating and gas and diarrhea. So it's a bit of a chameleon and a lot of people might not know they have it. Why was that survey done? The one that you just mentioned? So uh, 20 years ago, uh, when the organization used to be Canadian Celiac Association, they, they did a major survey. And we just thought 20 years later, it's really important to take a... Um, you know, a, a, a measurement of where we where we are today. You know, have we got have things improved? Is their quality of life better? Is diagnosis getting done faster? And what we found is uh, people are still not getting diagnosed. Uh, people are still uh, suffering. Uh, affordability is the new hot topic. That's what has changed. Is people are saying affordability is their number one problem because 
the gluten-free diet is 150 to 500% more expensive than just regular. So if you've heard a lot of the buzz on the radio these days on your station in the news about affordability, well, just think for people with celiac disease when their diet is 150 to 500% more. So that's a big uh, challenge for them. And then the other challenge is um, a lot of fearful and food service. When they step out of their comforts of their homes, um, you know, it's the Wild West. They just don't know if they're safe. They have to make 16 calls to the restaurants and find right. out if it's safe and ask the servers questions. So we're really trying to make their feel like they belong in society and make it easier for them to find access to safe food. Uh, and especially for our most vulnerable, um, we really do worry about seniors in long-term care, people who may be in treatment centers who um, sometimes can't self-advocate. So, so those are the big kind of big issues facing them right now. Was there anything surprising or unusual that, that came out of the new study? The big one was the neurological. Um, we think that there are a lot of physicians are thinking, okay, you know, I'll screen for someone if they're showing that classic gas, like, you know, bloating, uh, upset stomach. Um, I sound like a Pepto-Bismol commercial, but, yep. um, but, uh, but it's the neurological. And so it's presenting very differently and people are seeking help, but they're not the, the physicians just don't maybe understand that it could be celiac disease. So that's a big, um, aha moment for us. Um, and we weren't surprised about the affordability. That's, you know, that's the other, you know, for us in the community, we, we know that's a, a big concern. So let's talk a bit about that. So the, you, you mentioned several times that, it, you know, it's not being properly diagnosed. Uh, how, is it a screen test? Is it an, el an elimination diet that you undergo in order to determine whether or not you're celiac or have sen sensitivities? Yeah, so so celiac disease is a, a, a chronic lifelong autoimmune condition. You actually have to have the genes to have it. So, but even if you have the genes, you might not actually eventually get celiac disease. Um, and people can go to our website at celiac.ca if they think they have celiac disease. And we have a symptom checker, and there are about 260 different kinds of symptoms that you know, celiac disease can appear as and autoimmune diseases are like that. Yeah. So if you think you've got celiac disease, you, you have a discussion with your doctor and you start with a blood test. And fortunately, because of our advocacy, it's now covered in Ontario. So you go in, um, you go to a lab, just get a simple blood test, and they're going to be looking for these uh, TTG levels. And if they're a certain level, um, then they're going to send you off for a biopsy. It's called an endoscopy. Uh, it's not super invasive, but then they check the inside of your uh, small intestine to see if there's actual physical damage because there can be some other different conditions. Um, but it's really, really important that if you think gluten is a problem for you, don't stop eating the gluten because unfortunately um, you need to be eating gluten to have that inflammatory response that then shows up on the blood test, shows up in your gut. So that's a one caution. So a lot of people tend to just go, oh, I'll just eliminate gluten. Uh, but then they don't know for sure if they have celiac disease. So you don't really want to be on a lifelong, very, very expensive diet if you don't have to be. Right. Um, but it's also important to know if you have a lifelong chronic disease that can put you at risk for a lot of different things. And because it's genetic, um, you know, your grandchildren can have it, your spouse, your, your kids, uh, there might be cousins. So if someone in the family finds out they're celiac, then you start screening the rest of the family members, uh, the first degree relatives, because there could be someone else in your family that also has it. So with the endoscopy, is it like a colonoscopy or are they taking a tissue sample? 
they're coming down through your your mouth. Ah, uh, they put okay. a bit of a, a, a freezing in, and uh, it just it goes down. They take a couple of snips. Uh, it's just a day procedure, and uh, yeah, that's it. Okay, so as a result of what the survey found, so these sort of unique findings on the psychological and 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 not gut oriented side. Uh, what is Celiac Canada going to do with that information? Well, um, we're going to take it to Parliament to help change some laws around tax and affordability. Uh, currently, there is a mechanism that is uh, terribly ineffective uh, to help people um, claim back some of the cost, extra cost of the gluten-free diet because the um, food is their medicine, and so they can claim, but it's really um, not very beneficial. It's complicated. I won't go through it, but in the end, they get about 30 bucks, you know, not even back. It's just reduces their tax. So we're going to be advocating to help them afford their their medicine. Uh, We're going to be asking Parliament to help us increase uh, awareness of celiac disease because so many people are undiagnosed and they're, you know, getting all these different tests that you know, it could just be a simple blood test and they find out it's celiac disease. Um, this is, it's chronically underfunded compared to all the big, uh, the big diseases out there. Only, only, you know, thousands of dollars are going to celiac research, not millions of dollars. So we're really playing on a unlevel field here um, and to raise awareness. And we also want to change um, laws around long-term care. So a lot of your listeners, you know, no, no one wants to end up in long-term care, but you might. And when you're there, you want to try and be as safe as possible. And for people with celiac disease, they're terrified. They really don't know if they'll be able to get safe food. So there is a new Safe Long-Term Care Act that the federal government is working on. And we want to make sure that people with celiac disease uh, are protected. Um, It is a human right to have safe food. So that is something from a federal legislative area. And then also menus. Countries like Italy have, uh, you walk into a restaurant and you open a menu and you can see exactly what you can have that is safe for you because they clearly identify um, the allergens and gluten on a menu. And we'd love to see that come to Canada. So those are the some of the things we're asking for. It's interesting you mentioned Italy because I've traveled there many times and I would say they are not as sophisticated uh, when it comes to food allergies and issues like celiac. Like I, we, when we were traveling with our kids, my, my son actually has a food allergy, which I know is different than celiac, but we actually had to like uh, do translations to speak with the serving staff to make sure they understood the seriousness of the illnesses because a lot of times, you know, uh, they weren't aware and, and Italy is, is, I know gluten central. So I'm, I'm surprised. You know, it, it is, it is interesting actually from a gluten-free perspective, maybe with some other allergens they're they're behind. Okay. Um, but Italy's Italy's uh, you would think the world of pasta, as you just said, yeah. they actually have a lot of gluten-free options. They, they do. have um, a lot of certified restaurants, gluten-free, and they're actually now even ahead of us screening children for celiac disease in Italy. Okay. Um, and so we're really excited to see how that goes because maybe we'll find out celiac disease is more than 1% of the population that it, it's higher, but they can also help us speed up the diagnosis because right now it takes about 10 years for someone to get diagnosed from s- symptom onset to when they finally get diagnosed. And that's a long time to suffer. That's a lot of complications that can happen. So we are looking to Italy actually for some leadership in gluten-free. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks a lot for having me. That was Melissa Secord. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the work of the Black Physicians Association of Ontario on The Tonic. 
Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Chennai Kadangori has led international economic and community development non-profit programs in sub-Saharan Africa, the Caribbean, and North America. She's the executive director of the Black Physicians Association of Ontario and is happy to support Black youth success and rituals for recovery. Uh, she has extensive experience in research, leadership development, education, economic development, and nonprofit management. In her spare time, she's involved with projects for Rotary International and sits on boards, including the Meta Center. Her current work in anti-Black racism in public health inspired her to serve on the Born Health Equity Advisory Group. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, and yourself? I'm doing pretty well today. So, mm-hmm. so we've, you know, over the last year or so, I think we've had a couple of members and speakers uh, from the BPAO on the show before, but you've got a lot going on in the last <laughs> week or so. So I thought I'd bring you on the show and we could talk about some of the work that, that the association is doing and some of the work that you're doing. Does that sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan. So what does the Black Physicians Association of Ontario do and why do you think it's necessary? Um, so I always say we have two audiences or two groups that we support the most. The one is people in a medical education journey. So you, everything from pre-med up to practicing physician, we have programming for them, whether it's around networking, um, training, you know, continuing professional development, any kinds of supports uh, where they have, you know, they're going to face a lot of barriers. Uh, black physicians make up 2.8% of the physician population. And so the other audience is community. So the black health of Ontarians, uh, improving black health of Ontarians, is another core focus. So we do that through uh, different community health center projects, and we partner with Ontario Health uh, on the black health plan. So that is everything from increasing um knowledge around screening awareness. Uh, We've got doctors in mobile clinics at the CHCs. Uh, We connect our medical learners to CHC so they can learn to serve racialized community. Um, And then we also, um, a a lot of people found out about us because uh, during the pandemic, the Black Health Vaccine Initiative, we basically administered 76,000 doses of the vaccine uh, using just 30 odd uh, volunteer physicians. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So uh, for those who don't know, um, what are some of the issues surrounding the black community with respect to health, like like in racialized health? Like what, what are some things that you're working on that people may not even be aware of or think of? Mm. So there are many chronic conditions that, um, you know, diversely affect the uh, black community. Uh, we're looking at diabetes, obesity, hypertension, uh, and, you know, cardiovascular diseases, um, and also even kidney disease, right? There 
a lot of these uh, chronic conditions that are actually either preventable or, you know, you can get much better treatment. But black community just always uh, makes the makes the wrong list for those. So that's why all of our initiatives are trying to turn it around. Mental health is a very challenging one. So that's the one we, we partner with uh, Black Health Alliance on. Um, but those are sort of, you know, most of the chronic conditions, there's some kind of programming that we're looking at uh, from the, the ones that are really high. Got it. So you recently held a symposium. What were some of the topics covered? So, so what, what are some of the current issues in, in, in racialized health? Oh, okay. So, I mean, to start with, we had a keynote from Jennifer Berner talking about changing health through philanthropy. So uh, the underfunding of black organizations, I think, is already just a, a, an issue across the board that impacts even health. Um, breast cancer is a, a large one. Sorry, you know, cancer screening is something that we're heavily involved in. And our incoming president is actually a surgical oncologist. But we have... Um, we had a talk from Dr. Neil Isaac, one of our board members. Uh, in fact, he's one of our longest-serving board members, and uh, he was talking about breast cancer screening updates for black women. Um, I'll also, just to say, one of the things we're proudest of is we were a large influencer for changing the breast screening um, breast screening age from 50, you know, the recommended from 50 to 40 right. uh, because because of, you know, what's happening in black community. Uh, and then, of course, you know, institutionalized uh, sexism and racism, you know, across the health sector. I think the health sector is one of the last institutions where uh, racism was has been included right up to the science, which has led to poor care. So a lot of needing to remedy that. So Dr. Michelle Schulzberg was talking specifically about uh, this in hematology, so, you know, politics of blood. We also had Dr. Yvette Miller-Montrope speaking about, uh, you know, Skin of color. I mean, look, you're talking about vitiligo and other dermatological issues. Most things are packaged for, uh, you know, white skin. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of issues um, uh, around black health for that. And then the last talk was by a resident physician, Dr. Chantal Phillips, uh, who's going to be our incoming uh, resident uh, physician president because we have an organization called BRPO. Within mm-hmm. our board, and she's talking about how to better understand and care for Black youth and their health. So, as we said, mental health is is large on that, and she's done a lot of work around that. So it was a really, you know, I, I felt like it was a good three sixty. There's never enough time to cover all the issues, but I think those are really good topics to pick. Okay. Let's talk about some of the work uh, that the association is doing. And, and I think you mentioned this off the top, but can you talk about the creation of the remote hubs and, and the work that's being done through those? Mm, mm. So that is, uh, the hubs are a great way to serve both of the audience that I, audiences that I mentioned before. If you have medical learners and they're needing support, mentorship. There, there needs a lot of uh, community encouragement when you are on your, your medical learning journey. And so we are, you know, we're, we're based out in Scarborough is our head office, but we are uh, predominantly in the GTA, mm-hmm. but we serve all of Ontario. So the remote hubs were necessary for us to make sure all these great projects we have, partnering with CHCs here, uh, partnering with Ontario Health here, needs to be scaled out to the rest of Ontario. So we have five hubs. Um, two have already been established. So we've got, uh, uh, we did Sudbury in November and Ottawa in April. And this year, uh, on the 20th of March, uh, we have a London hub 
that's going to be opening. Hamilton and Kingston are the other ones that will be left. Yeah. Okay. And what is the Community Health Center Education Program? So what we do is we get second year mid students who have to start thinking about residency uh, to do summer internships, a paid summer internship. We give them a stipend uh, of eight weeks uh, to be in a community health center so that um, they can actually get more exposure to working with racialized community. Uh, In the hospital spaces, uh, there are not as many racialized people. And so for people like us, we feel like for you to adequately address black health, racial concordance matters, right? So we have um, about five, I think in this cohort, we have about five medical learners. They'll be stationed with their nearest community health center for that two weeks, and it culminates in a capstone project. So if you're thinking, as an example, oh, I'd like to be a surgeon, it's going to be great to spend some time shadowing, you know, a surgeon at a CHC and actually understanding, you know, some of the challenges and is this really for me? but also understanding how to best serve community that culturally appropriate care. Um, so that's the CHC program. So that program is, is sort of uh, community-facing as opposed to institutional-facing, or am I wrong about that? When you're yes. ta- so, so, so normally in the medical schools, the curriculums in the medical schools are still a lot more mainstream. Right. They're still playing catch-up, right, and trying to have things on, you know, care for black communities or, you know, uh, for BIPOC communities. So... The community health centers have basically been, you know, the role models around this. I mean, we were uh, co-founded by the same physicians that created Thai Blue in Scarborough, which everyone's heard about in all their innovative practices. And that's because the culturally appropriate care is at the center of how they do their business. And so the rest of the CHCs in that program, Women's Health, Women's Hands, uh, Durham Community Health Center, Black Creek, you know, all of these places are just... I think I hit of the curve when it comes to culturally appropriate care and some of the results they have, I think also prove to the, to the importance of this. Okay. So you, you used the phrase a moment ago, racial concordance. Can, can you, <laughs> can you elaborate a bit on that and, and why it's an important issue for, for uh, black health? Yes. So it is. Um, so there's a lot of research that's been done and what has come out is that people racialized communities, get better care outcomes when they're served by, you know, people who understand them culturally, racially. So in essence, you know, people will always feel more comfortable going to a doctor that looks like them and understands them. Um, I think most people even understand this from a linguistic uh, standpoint, right? Because even mm-hmm. blackness is not a monolith. So as an, uh, an example of this is they found out that breast cancer patients, regardless of race, have better outcomes when their clinicians and caregivers are black. So, you know, I think more de- more um, research will have to be done about what some of those cultural aspects that make better outcomes for all are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the, in the interim, we firmly believe as an organization that as black physicians, our role is paramount to improving black health as well, because there's just a there's just a care you will have with your patient that's going to be harder for someone who's not you know, sort of, uh, you know, interculturally trained or culturally appropriately trained to do. And unfortunately, the, you know, historic medical education is predominantly not, uh, it's it's been very, um, you know what I mean? It's been more, it's been more mainstream and there haven't been considerations around the differences of how to care for community and, you know, 
everything from bedside manner to even listening to the patients, right? We always hear about black patients aren't heard, but when they have a black physician, the likelihood is higher they're going to be understood and heard. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. No worries. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Ludo Burnell, ND, Dr. Barb Warger, ND, Melissa Secord, and Chennai Kadunguri. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For more timely, up-to-date, and accurate health and wellness information, subscribe to The Tonic Newsletter. Now distributed once a week, The Tonic Newsletter, with content curated personally by me, will keep you in the loop. There's contests, prizes, insider scoops, and so much more. Visit www.thetonic.ca and sign up today. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.